Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is a longtime friend of the magazine and the podcast, Amity Schlaes. Amity is the chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and a scholar at the King's College in New York City. She's also the chair of the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize, a prestigious award given to authors whose book uh, reflects Friedrich Hayek's vision of economic and individual liberty. Amity is the author of a number of best-selling books, including The Forgotten Man, which gives a history of the 1930s and the Great Depression. Her latest book, which we talked about on the podcast last year, is called The Great Society, A New History, or Great Society, A New History. The the book uh, focuses on the 60s and the transformation of the federal government under a series of presidents, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. Amity, thanks very much for joining us again. I'm so glad to be with you, Brian, and to be with the Manhattan Institute and City Journal and this podcast. It's interesting, when I heard the name Hayek, I I thought about the current situation, um, and particularly about comparing the COVID pandemic and the Great Depression. Why? Because COVID is an emergency, and the Great Depression was an emergency. And what Hayek said is that governments use emergencies, they exploit emergencies as occasions for power grabs. Uh, In Hayek's view, which is uh, darker, um, the, the, the event is just a pretext. And of course, we have all thought of the famous line by Rahm Emanuel, Um, a a panic, an emergency, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Politicians want to take great measures, not small measures. And when there is an emergency, whether real or in quotation marks, politicians act and believe they have more license. Well, that was going to be uh, the first kind of broad question I asked. Um, You know, during the pandemic, the country's experienced a very serious economic downturn, really the most significant downturn since the Great Depression. And the latter, of course, is a topic you're very familiar with because of your important book. Uh, but during this this unfortunate year, unemployment has skyrocketed. You know, there was images on the, the uh, television of cars lined up at food banks across the country. Uh, Congress wound up taking some pretty dramatic actions to to relieve the burdens imposed by the lockdowns, uh, which were intended to uh, curb the spread of the virus. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious just to get your broader take. Uh, uh, you started discussing that uh, at the, the opening of the podcast, but your broader take on what's transpired over the last six, seven months, and what do you think are some of the lessons that we can take from the Great Depression period and what's going on today? Well, thank you. You think about a government that wants to grow, wants to foster fear, because then people suspend disbelief uh, and give in to whatever the government wants. It's as simple as that, and you don't have to be paranoid to see that dynamic in action. Is the current downturn like the Great Depression, or must it be? It does, it need not, it, the current downturn need not be like the Great Depression. Why? Because this was a conscious decision by the government 
to turn off the economy as one turns off a faucet. We have 20% unemployment because we turned off the employment, just like a faucet. Not It didn't happen to us because of market forces or international forces as at the beginning of the Great Depression. The, the unemployment was a mystery in the early 30s. Why did it come? What's monetary theory? Monetary, very concept of monetary was new then. We just recently had got a Federal Reserve. Um, what, what, what was happening overseas that would affect this? Why was the demand missing? Was it the fault of capitalism? Nothing like that obtained this spring. Capitalism was doing fine. The COVID threat came. The health policy analysts in the government took over. The government's brain turned from an economic brain to a health brain for logical reasons. And the health, public health brain said, let us turn off the economy. We must do because otherwise too many people will die. Very different. So a 20% unemployment rate, as horrifying as it is to see on a chart, does not a make does not a necessarily a Great Depression make. What makes a Great Depression is poor policy year in, year out. Um, still, there there it was, a scare with uh, television hosts emphasizing damage to demand because most television hosts think in terms of demand. Most reporters do. Oh, people have no money. They won't shop. The economy will die. That's essentially the argument you hear on television. That's not necessarily so. And our economy could come back and indeed sort of has rebuked the politicians by coming back at least through markets pretty strongly. Um, so it, this is not like the Depression. But for whatever reason, we've come to feel that it is a mysterious emergency like a Great Depression because we have um, also a kind of plague upon us, the COVID-19, that we did not expect people are thrown off, concerned, a bit weird, frankly, and therefore more susceptible um, to arguments for collective action. I'd like to shift terrain uh, a bit and talk about great society, uh, in particular one chapter in that book, which is called Revolt of the Mayors. Now, uh, in, in your book, you describe politicians of that era like Richard Daly in Chicago, uh, Sam Yorty in L.A., John Lindsay in New York, Frank Rizzo in Philadelphia, all of them known today as kind of pivotal figures, uh, for better or worse. Um, you know, and then you, you can look at today's mayors um, who are in the news a lot. You've got uh, Ted Wheeler in Portland, uh, who has seen massive protests for over 100 nights in a row in his city. Um, you know, although the recent wildfires seemingly have slowed down the protests. Um, you have Mayor Jenny Durkin in Seattle, who allowed uh, activists to establish the now infamous autonomous zone within the city, which resulted in a lot of chaos and a couple of deaths. Um, you have Bill de Blasio, uh, a mayor we've criticized uh, quite a bit um, on this podcast. Uh, who isn't the most popular of, of New York mayors. Um, I'm, I'm just uh, curious how you compare the mayors of that 60s period that you describe in Great Society with today's crop and uh, whether there's any lessons to learn from the earlier experience for how we think about today's 
cities? Well, yes. When I wrote Great Society, um, I was writing about the past, but we're seeing some of the past repeat itself in, in 2020. Uh, the first similarity was that there were newer media at that time, television, so people could see what other people had and they didn't have. And, and that's important too, right? Um, second similarity was the mayors in my book, um, Sam Yorty and even Richard J. Daly, fancied themselves reformers. Uh, Richard J. Daly of Chicago was a loyal Democrat, but he was also a loyal Democratic reformer. Um, and they thought that um, this was all before riots, mostly in, in the 60s, um, that, well, the police were problematic. That, that was similar to now. There were police events where the police were awful, were bigoted, were violent, were inappropriate, were, you know, and so on. Well, okay. Um, and they thought, we have poverty. So that's similar to now. Some people really have not what they need. Um, and these mayors were mulling it over um, all across the nation. And they thought, let's elect um, maybe a Democrat because Democrats are more humane and progressive. And that was the, the, the thought train as far as it went. Lyndon Baines Johnson was elected in part because what he would do in the cities. He committed with his great society to support cities. The cities were one of its three C's, classroom, countryside, and cities. Okay, so those mayors expected that they would get money to train their policemen to employ underemployed uh, minority males and young ladies in the 60s. So in the summer, people would have things to do and learn trades and, and have a hope of a better life. That was what the mayor's expectation. And what amused me um, was particularly Daly, who was key to electing both Johnson and before him Kennedy, put all his poverty ideas in a box and mailed it to Johnson's new poverty office, postally, and said, here's my poverty plan. Where are you going to, and here's where you write the check to. But the... Johnson administration, and particularly the poverty czar, Sergeant Driver, didn't want to send money to the mayors. The Johnson administration staff considered the mayors discredited. Part of the problem, well, Richard J. Daly, he's a bigot. We want to send our money to more interesting, newer institutions, the equivalent of Black Lives Matter. For example, in Chicago, was the Woodlawn Organization, or even the Blackstone Rangers, um, which was a gang on the south side of Chicago, which had some interesting aspects. Um, you know, you think of Jesse Jackson coming out of that culture and maybe was closer than Richard J. Daly to what was happening to black males on the south side. So the mayors, to their fury, were bypassed and saw the money going to these more radical groups who in turn fought. And somebody or other in one of the radical new groups favored by the administration and its budget said, well, this isn't radical enough. And they would splinter off and have Black Lives Matter Ultra. And there was a kind of jurisdictional chaos and, uh, you know, multiple groups competing for new money to basically subordinate the police and uh, enfranchise the community through federally funded community action. It, very similar to the kind of impulse we're seeing now, and doubtless there'll be money flowing to cities that won't go directly to mayors, even Democratic mayors, but will go to um, to newer institutions favored in the moment, who will then squabble among themselves. And the consequence was riots. 
What's right. forgotten is all this was done in the name of preventing riots, but the great riots that we remember, the real tragedies for the cities, you think of Watts, particularly in Los Angeles or Detroit, where the downtown was destroyed, um, came after community action to train police, to teach police to get along with youth, to empower youth, to create jobs, to have discussions, to find uh, tenable apartments for people, et cetera, after. So the lesson of the 60s is when you have give um, cities something to fight over, sometimes there is more unrest than there was before. Uh, that was the tragic absurdity of the 60s. Uh, and if you go back um, and look at the articles about Chicago, particularly where I grew up, um, on the South side, people were really appalled because in the end, funds did flow to a true gang, the Blackstone Rangers, in large increments, sort of in the way, um, Brian, we spend money overseas now to calm terrorists and drug companies, such as Columbia. Money was sent to the to the FARC to turn them into a kind of vigilante police at, who would keep the peace. It was sort of like that. Um, that was not reassuring to residents, black or white, to have a gang ruling with federal support in their neighborhood. And that gave rise to the first great exodus from the city, the famous flight that we all actually regret. And that was only beginning to be repaired in recent decades with people moving back into the city from the middle class. So it was a terrible dynamic. Um, and the people who suffered most uh, in one way or another, the agony of the mayors were, were democratic mayors because they did believe in reform. The revolution in that period did eat its own. Um, and it was so appalling uh, that um, th that such policies were not endorsed by mayor mayors of either party for decades to come. Well, we, we risk uh, repeating that dynamic again today. It's very troubling. Um, you're principal area of expertise, I think you would agree, is, is in American economic history. I've written a lot about it. Uh, you've been uh, um, an eloquent advocate for classical liberal economics, which you, you know, encourage at the Coolidge Foundation and also uh, with the, the Institute's uh, Hayek Prize, which we discussed earlier. Um, I think, you know, it's fair to say, and we've written a bit about this in City Journal, that there's been a remarkable shift in what's considered the acceptable range of economic thinking, certainly in the press today, but also in the academy. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how you're seeing that uh, over the last few years when it comes to economic theory and writing and journalism, which ideas are getting attention, which aren't, and uh, what's going on exactly there? Well, redistribution gets attention. Um, redistribution is, it makes you feel better if you're a it makes a voter feel better. Oh, we will give some more of what they have to them from group A to group B, right? Um, all right. The question is, empirically, does it work? I'm setting aside um, the moral disadvantages of that. It, 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 redistribution usually doesn't work. What happens is the people who are being forced to give more move. It, it's as simple as that. Um Men change countries, women change countries, they change states, they change cities, they move. They, they don't stand up and say, I'm moving over tax. They say something like, um, I want to get the children out of the COVID environment or, you know, 
2020, but they move when they're overtaxed um, or over overly challenged. Redistribution is taxation. Um, so that's the first part of it. Um, and an acknowledgement of that data is just honesty. So what, what, uh, what is interesting to me is the extent to which current economics is denying reality. Um, that, that's shocking. Um, how, uh, what's another way to put it? Another way to put it might be that what would happen in the United States if we cut the tax on, um, stock sales, the capital gains tax, um, down to 5%. It might be 20 or more now. What if, what if we cut it to 5%? Well, we would never do that because that's politically inappropriate because only rich people sell and buy stocks in the, in the, uh, in the cliche. Only they do. What would happen to the economy? It, it, I, I would like to have an economist um, answer that question because very few, not even a Marxist-leaning economist, would deny that if the United States cut the capital gains tax to 5% and somehow promised to keep that cut for five years, that all our unemployment that's supposed to be so, so evoke the depression would go away. It will, would go away. No question. If we had a five, everyone would have a job and we might even have better jobs because companies would need people and so would invest more in training them. It wouldn't just be nickel and dime jobs, but but nobody is allowed to say, let us cut the capital gains tax to 5%. Nobody would dare say it because it sounds like, just sounds like it's it's helping the rich. So, so this is quite a, 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 a distressing denial um, and a, a newer denial. Um, and here I would say, Brian, it, it's no accident that Alberto... Alicina won the Hayek Prize this year for a book about austerity because it, this this winner um, of the Hayek Prize, who unfortunately has passed away, wrote he's Italian originally, um, and he speaks with experience from the world. So he's not subject to the U.S. amnesia. And what he said was the U.S. is going to come to a period when we need to impose austerity because we will need to pay for all the things we're currently buying and we will have to cut our government back. And then he reviewed different forms of government austerity and concluded that even tax cuts might be a better kind of austerity for growth because they would permit growth even as the government uh, recouped and saved. Um, it would be harder for an American that is a pure American who'd only spend time in America to even say that. But uh, foreigners can say that because they have evidence from many other foreign countries. So I, I don't think it was an, an accident that we got an Italian lesson this year vis-a-vis um, -vis Hayek and the prize. I, I think the only people who dare speak truth to power are, are non-U.S. people currently, which is amazing an amazing statement. Thanks very much, Amity. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, Amity's work at the Coolidge Foundation. You can find that at www.coolidgefoundation.org. And the book that we've mentioned a few times on the podcast, Great Society, A New History, uh, is, is readily available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, it's really a terrific book published by Harper. 
Uh, you can follow Amity Schles on Twitter. It's at Amity Schles. And uh, make, make sure, please, that you follow City Journal on Twitter as well. That's at City Journal. And we're on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And, and you know, as, as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, uh, please give us a ratings on iTunes. So thanks again for listening. And thanks very much, Amity, for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.